Chapter 1, On the Bus The opening quote for this chapter is from Aristotle. Even the tiniest initial deviation from the truth is subsequently multiplied a thousandfold. Taking the bus to school was never my first choice. Even though the bus stop was only a few blocks from my house, I usually walked to school. It was only when the weather was bad that I would take the bus. Today, it was bone cold, so I walked to the bus stop to wait with the others. Standing apart from the group, I watch as the yellow bus rumbles to a stop and is overtaken by its cloud of exhaust. When it's my turn to board, I climb inside and make my way to one of the empty and cold green vinyl seats as the heater howls to blow warm air into the cold space of the bus. I sit alone, avoiding the company of others by staring out the window, even though there was never anything to see. So I just sit there, not looking at anything in particular, peering into the passing cars to see who or what is in them. At the intersection of Lake Boulevard and Hampton Avenue, the bus comes to a stop at the traffic light. Gazing outside, I can see the moisture fogging the windows of the cars that have been left outside overnight, their exhausts now belching like puffing chain smokers. Suddenly, for no apparent reason, everything becomes very quiet and still. Not just inside the bus, but inside everywhere, as the sound of the world fades before the wave of silence that is pouring into my mind. Time stands still, and with it comes a feeling of serenity and a way of being that knows everything about everyone waiting their turn at the light. In an instant, I know the details of their lives and how it has delivered them to this moment. I can see, feel, and sense their thoughts, hopes, and fears. But even more, I know that they're on their way to jobs to earn money, to pay for the cars, homes, clothes, and food but only earning enough so that they will have to do it again the next day and the next until their end. Then, from out of the silence, a voice says, Mankind is engaged in a process that has nothing to do with what life is about. Then it's gone. As unexpectedly as it arrived, the stillness and serenity evaporates, and in its wake, the howling heater and clamor of voices comes crashing through. But even though I have returned to the same world, everything has changed. A moment ago, I was your typical teenager on his way to school, preoccupied with the kind of stuff that fills adolescent minds. Now transformed, I was filled with a silent dread because in that moment of silence, I understood something was very wrong with the way we lived our lives and instantly knew that I wanted nothing to do with it. Right then and there, I vowed to never become one of those people, sitting in a car waiting for the light to change. But how was I going to avoid this dreadful fate? A moment ago, it all seemed so clear when I knew everything about everything, but now I couldn't quite remember what it was I needed to do. All I had was this overwhelming sense that I must do something different. But what was it? After all, I was only 17 and knew nothing about life. What should I do? Who could I tell? Where did it come from? And what did it mean? Thirty minutes later, the bus arrives at school and I head for my first class of the day. On my way there, I mentally replay the event on the bus, looking for clues in the fading details of that moment. I retrace my step to the bus stop, my time on the bus, and the scenes outside the window. I recall the sensations of silence, serenity, and timelessness from which the wisdom had come, trying my best to figure out what had happened.
I replay the event in my mind again and again, looking for the exit and entry points to that reality in the same way I would retrace my steps when lost. But all I know is that one moment the world is one way and in the next it isn't. So there I was walking to class, trying to figure out where I was now so I could find my way back to the familiar life I'd known only a few minutes before. But try as I might, I could neither figure out what had happened nor find my way back. And there was nothing I could do about the fact that everything was completely different and yet the same all at once. I was left feeling even more uncomfortable with my adolescent self. Somehow, I managed to make my way to the men's locker room and get suited up. When my attention shifts from inner thoughts to outer surroundings, I find myself standing with the other first period PE students in front of the coach. He tells us to run the circuit and meet him back at the bleachers. When we get there, he's waiting for us with a stack of papers in his hands. He tells us that today will be our introduction to soccer, and after passing out the instructions, he begins his overview of the sport. Sitting there in the cold Newark wind, it occurs to me that we're all sweating and likely to catch a cold if we don't do something to warm up. So I raise my hand, and when Coach acknowledges me by saying, Bear, I ask him if we're going to do any drills today. He says no. Then I ask if the basketball gym is being used this period. He says no. I then ask if it would be possible for us to use a gym during this interview so that we don't freeze sitting here in the cold. Again, he says no, and reminds us that regulation sweatpants and sweatshirts are sold at the school bookstore and that we should have thought about that before now. Then I say, since many can't afford them, none of us are actually wearing them. It's cold out and we're not going to be doing any drills. Could you make an exception and take us into the gym? Again, he says no and continues his overview. Now, I've never been a problem student. It's my senior year and during my three years at Newark High, I've made honor roll or scholarship every quarter, lettered in varsity basketball and tennis, participated in student government, was the lead in our drama department version of hair, and wasn't into drugs, drinking, or smoking. I was your basic building block of a successful academic environment. But today, something was different. I was beginning to question everything. After what seemed like a reasonable period of reflection, an eternity to me, but in all likelihood barely a minute, I do something I would never have expected. I stand up and turn to the coach and say, Coach, this is unacceptable to me. I'm cold and uncomfortable and do not understand why I need to sit here and freeze while you stand there in long pants and your lined windbreaker just so you can exert your authority without regard for our comfort or well-being. I'm going inside. Then I turn and walk away from the bleachers towards the locker room, not too quickly, and a little shaky, but overall very calmly, ignoring the threats from coach that I better come back and sit down. But I don't. I don't turn around, and I don't stop or acknowledge his shouts or threats. I just keep walking, and when I enter the men's locker room, I grab a towel from the bin, take my shower, dress, and leave the building. Later that day, I receive a note requiring me to visit the vice principal. When I show up at his office, I wait outside until he motions me in and invites me to sit down. He explains the reason for my being there and the complaint that coach has filed against me. Now, this vice principal, whose name I don't remember, is a reasonable, even likable guy. He doesn't try to come down hard on me, but half-heartedly holds to the official line as a school administrator by suggesting that I may have authority issues. I look him straight in the eye and say, this is my third and final year at this school. During my time here, I have received excellent grades, performed with distinction in varsity sports, and have participated in student government. I don't drink, smoke, or do drugs, and have never had any incidents regarding authority before. How can you sit there and honestly suggest that I have authority issues? This is ridiculous. Fumbling for his response in the face of my logic, 
he tentatively suggests that I might want to apologize to coach for embarrassing him in front of the class. To which I reply, no way. This is my body. I alone am responsible for it and won't allow anyone to exercise their sense of authority at my expense. Then I just sit there, once again calm on the outside and shaky on the inside. For until that moment, I'd never spoken so adamantly. Fortunately, the vice principal is flustered and certain that I won't change my mind. He does the only thing he believes he can given the circumstances. He warns me to stay out of trouble and to not find myself in a similar situation for the rest of the year. As I leave his office, I am relieved with the outcome, but I feel afraid how coach will treat me the next time I'm in class. As I begin my walk home, wondering what's next, I vow to never take the bus to school again.